to the new flesh podcast a podcast about horror movies and all things tangentially related to horror movies and the horror lifestyle my name is brett arnold and i'm here with my co-host jesse hassinger hello jesse what's up oh that enthusiasm <laughs> oh no that sounded like that's uh, was that enthusiasm that sounded hostile to me actually let me yeah are you mad? hi how are you are you mad at me <laughs> what's going on are we are we fighting <laughs> you your your four and a half stars on view on nope vastly differs from my four stars on <laughs> yeah we're beefing right now it. uh jesse let it slip we're talking about nope today on this here podcast but uh we're gonna get into it a little differently today because <laughs> i have i am a glutton for punishment and i have started an entire new podcast to spend my time doing for the 35 people who might listen to it. Uh, but I am starting a new podcast called Roger and Me about Roger Ebert and his reviews of movies going back through the 70s through the 2000s. We're going to rewatch clips from his TV review show and talk about the movies. We're going to just continue doing what we do on this show and review new movies every Friday on that feed. But as of now, the new flesh still lives uh, until my brain explodes from too much ac- overactivity. Uh, it's still here and we're still here and we're talking about nope today and i recorded nope as an episode of that podcast and we're just gonna port it right over here but don't worry babies we're still talking about the news we're gathering after that that uh we're mementoing this we're doing it backwards yes we are doing this section after the other one but this is the first section of the new flesh podcast which is of course bits and pieces and there are no shortage of bits and or pieces this week let's start with insidious five insidious five gets a release date baby are you ready for this jesse why don't you i'm gonna give you three guesses what is the release date of insidious <laughs> this is a fun game what is the release date of insidious five I'm it's 2023 sure I'll it's, give you that. It's, it's, it's July 12th or something, 2020, whatever the closest. That You're it, pretty yeah. close. It's July 7th. I wish you didn't know. I wish it was a blind <laughs> shot in the dark because I feel like you would have gotten anyway. Uh, would you have put, if Jesse were making the calendar, would Jesse have put Insidious 5 in the middle of summer 2023? That's kind of a vote of confidence, is it not? It is. I mean... You know I love horror movies, right? I hope. Oh, uh, you but... haven't seen these, have you? <laughs> yeah, no, no, I do. I do. I've seen all the Insidiouses. I actually I really like them. Oh, okay. I just mean in general. My I, there's just always something a little like about that's like summer July seventh. Must be a prime slot. So like Insidious five going there and must th- I do think they think yeah this movie's got the goods and people are ready for another one. These movies always kind of overperform, so I think they're expecting more of that. My prerogative as a horror fan, not that I don't watch horror all year long, but I like to make sure October is taken care of. I'm doing the mafia gesture in this <laughs> before we 
thinking start thinking about june july august yeah you know what i love horror that. releases <laughs> I, i'm <laughs> always make sure yeah i'm always yelling at the studios to like first of all you know they they often do like there's like one thing that comes out like a week before halloween that's usually what it is but as the box office keeps proving again and again no matter when you put a horror movie out it's probably going to do well i totally agree with jesse I would 100% if I were master calendar maker of all movie scheduling, I think I would lean on filling up October so every week there's an ample supply of new horror movies, even if it's just even one week. Even you know, fall, September through October. You can get started yeah. on spooky like season How they released September. last Christmas in November. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it was out under- of theaters in time for Christmas. Yeah, and I understand the reason for this actually was specifically so they could move a summer movie into October. Uh, the Sony Spider-Man thing, Madam Web, which could be spooky, but you know, Venom and um, and uh, Morbius weren't really spooky enough for my tastes. Adam, so I don't... Adam Web. I thought his name was Mark <laughs> Web. <laughs> Madam Web. Madam the... Web, starring Dakota Johnson and Record Scratch, Adam Scott. <laughs> um are we having fun yet and we all and also yes be, we are having fun because sydney sweeney is also in it and we i feel like we like her, I like her. I that's <laughs> yeah, what we say there's a sydney sweeney yeah. sound effect on the pod it's just <laughs> <laughs> i do feel like every, no it's uh, yeah every every dude i know is like Sto- stoically like she's uh, yes, beautiful bro she's beautiful <laughs> she's a beautiful soul she's, she looks really <laughs> smart that's what everyone's saying <laughs> she's great i mean she's she does have charisma she shouldn't be on I think tv she's a anymore great actress i have I'm no... for her to move into movies full-time forget yeah. this euphoria crap i think get she's... away from what's his face sam levinson yeah. get away from him sam just levinson my friend did the best distance. tweet she just tweeted sam levinson just do porn babe <laughs> <laughs> clearly yes. what he wants to be doing yes. uh, anyway insidious five jesse fucking nailed it it's out <laughs> On July seventh, twenty twenty three. Jesse, how many years has it been since the last installment? By oh, the time Jesus that movie Christ. comes out, um, I'm gonna say it'll have been five years. Is that right? You're fucking right. It has been five years five since and a half, the, the last key. Which I liked. I liked them all. I like them all. They're all pretty good. Insidious I like them all movies. too. Insidious, the last like key. Them. I liked the least of them all, but I still enjoyed it. Um, Joe and, and Patrick I, Wilson is directing this one. Yes, he's Joe taking and I, control definitely reviewed insidious the last key on that podcast many years ago so five years ago i guess check it out yes patrick wilson star of the films is making his directorial debut do you know who else made their directorial debut in this franchise jesse uh are you gonna go three for three on trivia i'm fucking so excited uh is it was it was it lay one l's first one lee one l baby yes he directed insidious chapter two three chapter three which is quite good I really, really like it. It's my favorite one, I believe, uh, besides the first one. Uh, so Scott Teams wrote the script based on a story by franchise co-creator Lee Winnell and Scott Teams as well. Uh, Jason Blum is producing, of course. But yeah, most exciting thing, Patrick Wilson starring and directing. Um, do we know anything about this plot? I think it must be a prequel, but I don't know. I think I actually I do know I do know about the plot. I don't know why I know that. I must have looked at yeah. the article or something. You know more than a, I do. I'm I've I've got my spies on the inside with stupid code names. <laughs> Copyright any cool news. Uh, my my spy Opus the Penguin was in there. <laughs> uh, that's that's like that's not uh, that's like not dorky enough. Honestly, um, it's about I believe the kid from Insidious who is sort of haunted by these you know has the ghost sort of attached to him. I believe is going off to college now. 
because he's mad old. So it's like kind of a, I think it's actually kind of an, it's not a prequel. I think it like follows up. I think the some of the early, some of the other sequels were prequels or at least partially. And I think this one actually goes back to follow up part two or three uh, with a family from the original Chris uh, couple of movies. Am I to expect Rose Byrne to return? <laughs> you are not to expect that. I think that Rose Byrne <laughs> has contrived to be in bigger, bigger and better things. Um, I love Patrick Wilson dedication to being the scream King. Uh, he is always going to play the guy who looks a little overwhelmed by the situation at hand. He's also the fucking ocean master. So we just love, I just like Dr. Wilson a lot. I really like the, the groove he's found for the faded prom prom King groove from little children has become sort of his cinematic, you know, comfort zone. And I really like it a lot. Uh, so I'm excited, even though I thought, even though I would be more excited to watch it in the spooky season, I'll take it in July too. Sure. Jesse will take it in July. You heard <laughs> it here first. Um, <laughs> Scream six. We've got more casting information. If that's somehow possible, we learned through interviews last year. I'm not sure if we ever mentioned this on the podcast. I think we did, but the directors of the movie of the Scream five revealed that they wanted to cast Samara weaving in the last one. Uh, they said we were talking about it, but our schedules aren't going to work, which is a bummer, which is what Samara Weaving told Collider in 2020. We talked about it a lot, but unfortunately, because of scheduling, I can't do it. Well, guess what, Jesse? The stars have aligned. Samara Weaving has joined the cast of Scream 6. Yes. And, and um, you know who cool. else has joined? I know you do, so you can tell us. Uh, no, I don't know, actually. Oh, <laughs> damn it. I'd really set you up for that. Oh, I was always focusing all on Insidious 5. <laughs> well, this is a guy who, yeah, you really you really beefed up all your... You spent weeks studying the, the Insidious 5 uh, binder I gave you, and you didn't touch the, I I left. <laughs> the Scream 6 one. Yeah, well, I, I can tell you that Tony Revolori's in it. Who okay. you, you know who that is. But yes. I, that's a person that whose name I did not recognize, and then I Googled, and I was like, oh, this guy. So... Google Tony Revolori. What would people know him from most famously? The antagonist bully in the, the most recent Spider-Man movies? Yeah, like... he plays, I guess people would probably, the most, statistically, the most number of people <laughs> have seen him in, in as Flash Thompson in several of the highest grossing movies of recent years. But you know him and love him, I hope, from the Grand Budapest Hotel, where he plays the lobby boy, uh, uh, who's also, he's like the narrator of the movie, though he's the younger version of him. Um who is right? Uh, Ray, Ray Fiennes take, uh, takes under his wing. He's also been in several subsequent um, Wes Anderson movies. In fact, in French Dispatch, he's the younger version of Benicio del Doro's character. Uh, oh, that's in, right, and he's in the yeah. Great Grand Budapest. Yes, that's what I just said. <laughs> I was definitely listening and not reading my future notes. I'm gonna yes, make uh, a note of that one. Oh, brother! Don't yes. cut out the part where I look like an asshole. Okay, put that in there. No, I'm just gonna leave this all in. Yeah, just um, leave it. Just leave it. Uh, yeah. So yeah, he's a Wes Anderson guy. He's in the Spider Verse, and he's. Uh, and did now you know he was in the Grand Budapest Hotel, though? <laughs> Wait, um, him? <laughs> yeah. I was gonna. What if I jumped in? Is he in the? Ho is, I'm assuming if you're in the if you're in the Grand Budapest Hotel, is there a good chance you're also in the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel? <laughs> What's the crossover rate? Is there any? I feel like there's almost no crossover between those two hotels. In, we're gonna have to send our. Hotel. We're gonna put a team yeah. on that, and we'll yes. get back to you. Uh, <laughs> um, London is doing a Saw the Experience, which offers Saw fans an immersive chance to play with Jigsaw. 
Lionsgate and Twisted Pictures. You think Twisted Pictures would branch out and make Joker movies or something, but instead they're <laughs> no, stuck never. making Saws, an Saw only Saws. Only. <laughs> um, Saw the experience will be an adrenaline-fueled theatrical experience bringing to life new twisted games in the world of the iconic horror film franchise. Combining the thrill of escape rooms with the nerve-jangling horror with not the nerve-jangling horror, with just nerve-jangling horror, players will be pushed to their limits in this new participatory theatrical experience. In other words, thrill-seekers can immerse themselves in the twisted world of Saw with a multi-room escape experience. As Jigsaw would say, live or die, make your choice. <laughs> That's when good, he's like got Jigsaw. cancer and stuff and he can't talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm going to be standing outside. I'm going to fly to London for this, but just to stand outside it and going, you guys, don't. Jigsaw cheats. He cheats. He's not, he's he's not going to let you out. There's, yeah. there's going to be, I mean, I guess it's it's more uh, Hoffman, Detective Hoffman, who really cheats. That's just true. Thing. But, but you're going to, you don't want to get in a room. I mean, I Jesse is gonna Jesse's gonna level up on all the nerds who flew to London to see the Harry Potter play yeah. by flying to <laughs> London to see the Saw the Experience <laughs> escape room. We're gonna um, pour all the Patreon money into going to this. Yes, please <laughs> Which, join the pa- Why the is it in time. England, perfect, by the way? Good question. I'm assuming yeah. because Jigsaw there's no extradition to the US and <laughs> Jigsaw <laughs> Jigsaw has Jigsaw is on the run. He's in the UK. He's like, I've got to put on, I've got to put on a play. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> that was a little more Liam Neeson. He's on the dole. That's why Jigsaw. He's yeah, collecting All those right. checks. You're right. Yes, it's a good time to tell people to donate to the Patreon. If we get, you should set an arbitrary figure where if we get that number, we will go, we'll go to the London Saw experience. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay, that's like one of those things where it's like damned it's like a curse because like we yes. get, we're making all this money but now i have to go to london to go to the saw experience oh boy uh so check out patreon.com slash the new flesh podcast new flesh podcast no the i don't know find it good luck um m night Shyamalan's knock at the cabin new information before we thought it was just an original m night joint record scratch that is until now we know it is now an adaptation of a book called The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay, who is a Bram Stoker award-winning author, which is much better, much cooler of an accolade than the New York Times bestselling author. The Bram Stoker award-winning author. Fuck yeah. Um, this book is famous to me uh, because it has a it's, a... it's pretty recent, and it has a cover that has Stephen King's name so prominently on it that you'd think he wrote it. But he did. He did not. I I did, in fact, when I saw the headlines about this, think this was a Stephen King adaptation because of his name being so prominently on the cover. His name is so prominently on the cover, and it's such that whenever it's cropped, it looks like it says Stephen King, The Night at the Cabin. But if you open it, the quote is right above that. (laughs) It's actually really clever. Uh, for it's like a the asylum marketing style where you put out (laughs) you put out uh, snakes on a train on DVD the same day snakes on a plane comes out, and hope that people fuck up and. That's kind of what's going on there. But uh, M. Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin is an adaptation of a book. And the book is about a couple and their daughter's cabin invaded by strangers who take them captive. Uh, The couple is Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge. uh, And the daughter is Nikki Amuka Bird. And the strangers are Dave Bautista and Rupert Grint. So (laughs) this sounds awesome. All the signs point to awesome, especially the, the Rupert Grint one. We love Rupert Grint. 
Did you ever um, see this Rupert Grint movie? I have to look it up on my friend's letterbox. My friend's uh, wife went to, I don't know, some other country, Canada, or I don't remember where she was. I think she was in Canada, but she came back and brought him a DVD that I'd never heard of. And he logged it on Letterbox. And I thought it was the funniest thing on earth. So let me find it. It's it star. No, it's not okay. called driving lessons. It's called Thunderpants. Have you heard of this movie? Let me read not. you the description. The cover is Rupert Grint looking like maybe he just farted or something. And the description is, is thus. An 11-year-old boy's amazing ability to break wind leads him first to fame and then to death row before it helps him to fulfill his ambition of becoming an astronaut. What? What the <laughs> fuck is this? It's directed by... Do you know who Peter Hewitt is? Yeah. Didn't it's directed he... by Peter Hewitt, who directed most famously probably Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Yeah, uh, but he also directed like The Borrowers and Garfield, the first one, and Tom and Huck, a movie I loved when I was a kid. And that probably sucks. Um, and he also did a straight-to-video Home Alone movie. But anyway, he directed something called Thunderpants, starring Rupert Grint, about a farting boy that gets killed <laughs> some for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. I just wanted wow. to mention that. Uh so check out Thunderpants starring Rupert Grint. Um, <laughs> we have an update on Rob Zombie's The Monsters, which if it wasn't already the strangest project in history, it just keeps getting stranger. So we found out that it's going to be a Netflix thing. It will be coming to Netflix at the same time. Oh, wait, not at the same time. It's coming to... I have two different news sources here, and one is an updated version of the other. So give me a second. The Monsters is going to arrive on Blu-ray, DVD, and paid video on demand September 27th. So the Rob Zombie Monsters movie is essentially going straight to DVD. And then after that, it'll be on Netflix later this year. So there's a short window, September 27th. And then it says by the end of the year, it'll be on Netflix. So there's not that much time of exclusivity of it not being on Netflix. Um, but I know the real heads like me, I'm going to get that Rob Zombie Monsters Blu-ray. And we'll talk about it on September <laughs> 27th. Are they even going to do a cursory theatrical release? I don't even so think we... there's a Fathom event, which there was for the past <laughs> few Rob Zombie releases that are really bad. Um, That's a shame because I don't really want to get the fucking Blu-ray of the Munsters, but I do want to pay that same amount of money to watch it one time and not have something in my house. <laughs> oh yeah, I think we figured out what Jesse's gonna do. He's gonna <laughs> rent it. Yeah, uh, I'll oh, probably right. I guess that works and too, but... <laughs> throw away the, uh, the the case, keep the uh -huh. disc, and perhaps throw away the disc if the movie sucks. Um, <laughs> you know, Rob Zombie, R-rated guy, doing a P. It's officially rated PG, by the way. So we've got a PG Monsters movie from Rob Zombie that will be on Netflix at some point by the end of the year, but will be released straight to DVD before that. It's just such a bummer. Like, but even if you don't like Rob Zombie, you, you have to acknowledge that like he was a Hollywood director for a minute, right? And like was making studio pictures. And now he's kind of he did a couple like GoFundMe things for himself, and now this movie was is ostensibly a I think it has a universal logo on it but it's not a universal movie it's very confusing but like I just don't know how he's fallen so far is my question well I have to say you know really it's 
it's not that he's even fallen so far. It's just that when he was starting out as a filmmaker in the early 2000s, uh, what he was doing was like making movies for Lionsgate, making like low to mid budget, really lower on the lower end of mid budget movies for Lionsgate. And that's just is not as much of it. Now that is doing movies that are pretty much go directly to streaming or direct to VOD. Like the, the $4 million budgeted Lionsgate movie, like, does that exist? You know, it's not like he was making movies for Warner Brothers, <laughs> you know, like he never he had a couple wide release movies that did OK, but they were from like the small, the biggest yeah, of right. the indies. Lionsgate so did his like Firefly trilogy and then um, Halloween was. Must oh, yeah, that's true. Even that, yeah. though, that was a dimension. You know, does that oh, you're do, right. do, do, yeah. the studios on that level? That's part. I feel like that's the story we tell about so many of these of these, especially for horror movies, when you're when you are looking for stuff like the stuff we're into that big studios might make a horror movie now, especially if it's universal. But a lot of those studios that really specialized in that stuff are still around, but they aren't necessarily cranking it out at the same rate. Or if they are, they do send them to not as many theaters as the i mean a thousand thousand corpses the exact same movie issued now would not go out in as many theaters as that movie went out <laughs> it would it would be a probably family, right probably anyway yeah. that's just a, i don't even like zombies movies that much uh but i feel like i should you know I, I don't feel that he's necessarily fallen that much so much as he's not said hey i want to step it up and make a big budget movie for paramount you know <laughs> like for for him to make the type of movies he wants to make it's just is a different playing field unfortunately now yeah totally totally that's what happened uh more news kurt russell and his son wyatt russell are both joining the godzilla tv series on yeah. apple tv what a mad lib headline that was uh <laughs> godzilla and the titans is what it's called uh, their roles weren't divulged, but they will star alongside a bunch of people I've never heard of. So I'm not. Oh, Kiersey Clemens is one of them. <laughs> uh, WandaVision's Matt Shakeman will direct the first two episodes. This follows the universe that includes 2014's Godzilla by what? Gareth Edwards. Is that his name? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, 2017's Kong Skull Island from Jordan Vogue Robertson. Uh -huh. 2019's yeah. Godzilla King of the Monsters from Michael Doherty. Yes, and yes. 2020's King Godzilla versus Kong from Adam Wingard. Four for four. Yeah, that was actually impressive for myself. I really was pulling for like Jordan, the guy with the beard who did the Kings of Summer. Remember that? Um, <laughs> so the series is described as following the battle between Godzilla and the Titans at Leveled San Francisco and the new reality that monsters are real. The series will explore one family's journey to uncover its buried secrets and a legacy linking them to the secret organization known as Monarch. Sounds like it's going to be some MCU type TV shit. What do you think? I mean, I'm excited about it because I like I think the monster reverse thing is like nice and manageable. You know, like there's not that many movies because they make they take a long time to make uh, and they have involve extensive special effects. So I, I'm I'm into it just because it's not I know there's not going to be 10 Godzilla series. <laughs> you know, there's just going to be this nice little stopgap. Um it, I, I hope it's not low rent. I don't know how they're going to handle the like giant monster effects on a show where they probably can't have Godzilla just like hanging out every time. Um, it's going to be a lot like that first Gareth Edwards where the, the door is always closing on Godzilla or like they're constantly cutting away. Um, but I'm kind of into it. I like I like Wyatt Russell and I like Kurt Russell and I like Godzilla. So, you know, sure. Why not? Yeah, I'll watch it, but I'm I'm quizzical. I'm, I'm, I'm I don't know what's going on here. I don't know if I trust it yet. We'll see. 
So we knew about the Kevin Bacon starring They Slash Them. Uh, there's a trailer out now. I'm not going to watch it. Of course, it debuts on Peacock Friday, August 5th. And unfortunately, there's no press screenings for it in New York. But my friend who works at NBC Universal, they're doing a screening at 30 Rock in a theater for this movie. And unfortunately, I have plans that night out of town. So I will not be seeing They Slash Them probably the only opportunity to see it in a movie theater. Um, and I'll be watching it on Hulu like the rest of you. Or no, Peacock, not Hulu. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm going to open Hulu and demand that they play it for me. Uh, <laughs> Kevin Bacon, Anna Chlumsky, and a bunch of kids. It's about a queer conversion camp. It's a horror movie. It's written, directed, and executive produced by John Logan of the Penny Dreadful TV show. I think it has potential, but also, I don't know if I trust it yet. We'll see. So... Everyone was clamoring, not only for a Mortal Kombat sequel to the movie from last year or two years ago, whatever that was, but we were all like, we got to get Simon McQuad back. We love director Simon McQuad, <laughs> who really livened this movie up. Uh, well, thankfully for the people who want that, it's all happening. Mortal Kombat sequel is coming and the director is returning. While it had previously been announced that Jeremy Slater was tapped to pen the sequel, now we know that Simon is returning to the director's chair. Plot details remain scarce. Safe to predict we'll see Johnny Cage appear based on the post-credits tease in Mortal Kombat. Which, God, does a single person remember that? Does a single person remember the post-credit tease from Mortal Kombat? One of the first movies that came back in theaters. I feel like that was one of the first movies that was like, movie theaters are back open and you can go see Mortal Kombat. And yes. I did it very excitedly. And it was <laughs> you tried such a to bummer. warn me. You tried to warn me, and I went to see it in IMAX anyway, and I like almost fell asleep. Isn't it deathly boring? It's it a movie dull. about Mortal Kombat that I'm pretty sure could not be less interested in Mortal Kombat, like fighting. <laughs> they they get to it at the very end, and it seems like they're like, oh, fine. We'll give you we'll give you some Mortal Kombat. We'll I have no rooms. idea. Yeah. I have no idea what the rest of the movie is. I couldn't even fathom or tell you what happens in it because it was so boring. It has completely exited my brain. It's one of those movies. It's really just completely gone. Uh, anyway, A Quiet Place, day one, will now hit theaters March 8, 2024. It's going to be directed by Michael Sarnosky, fresh off Pig, the Nicolas Cage movie that he wrote and directed. And Michael Sarnosky's headed to A Quiet Place with the third installment, said to be a spinoff. And we know that or it was supposed to come out September 22, 2023, but now it's March 8th, 2024. And this one will be a prequel. And as Deadline previously announced, the hope is this film would help set up a potential Quiet Place universe that the studio can build for years to come. What could go wrong? <laughs> um don't do that please don't do that it's enough i mean they're already doing that so whatever um oh there's this kind of a spoilery thing about dermal moroni and scream so i'm not gonna say it uh goosebumps more goosebumps movies rl stein says that um there's more in the works sony is doing more and it's not uh just movies it seems like they're gonna do a tv show a new tv show of goosebumps so that's all exciting if you're you have kids and you like horror. Speaking of kids and horror, Fear Street, the trilogy that we really were kind of I would say we were open to it to start. <laughs> yeah. And then completely loathed it by the end. But Earl Stein says, I hear rumors about 
more fierce dream movies for Netflix because the first ones did so well for them last summer. Again, what does that mean? People watch them and then never thought about them again. Uh, those films kind of shocked me because they were all R-rated. I've never done anything R-rated. All those teenagers were getting slashed. I was like, I have a slasher movie. That's fun. Uh, but Bloody Disgusting confirms that uh, Netflix is very deep in development on Morph Street. Maybe I can get um, Patrick Bryce back on and shit talk the movie he worked on to him again. <laughs> that would be a treat. Um, anyway, that was the bits and pieces segment. And now I will cut you. I will cut in to the Roger and me podcast, which is on its own feed. You can go find it, search for it. I don't know how to find it. It's It should be it should be everywhere itunes or podcasts apple podcasts spotify stitcher if it's somewhere if it's not somewhere let me know but i i put it everywhere and uh if you're too lazy though check it out here because this is this is this is us this is us talking about nope this is us talking about nope and now i'm gonna get out of here <laughs> All right. Welcome to Roger and Me. Wow, that's my first time saying that. Uh, welcome to Roger and Me, a podcast that exists to, I don't want to say worship Roger Ebert, but we're here to celebrate and appreciate Roger Ebert and his unique brand of film criticism. Uh, we're going to be here twice a week. Every Tuesday, we're going to be talking about an old episode of Siskel and Ebert or Ebert and Roper or At the Movies. Or Roger Ebert and the movies, I believe, was or another title. There sneak are several. Previews. Yeah, please. <laughs> sneak, sneak previews, previews are coming <laughs> soon. Yes, coming soon to a theater near you is the the very first iteration. So this show will be half rewatch podcast in that we will be rewatching um, all the old you know episodes of the shows and then discussing the movies that they discussed therein. From a modern perspective, you know, like, did they get it right? Uh, did they get it wrong? What are the things that have changed since then that may have changed your opinion on the movie? Um, so I'm excited to do that. But every Friday, which is what this is, happy Friday, everybody, we will be talking about every new theatrical release that is coming out that week in true Siskel and Ebert fashion. So that is what this part of the podcast is so we're starting with the part two i love the lore of having a very confusing start to this podcast there are so many elements to it and uh who could keep up but i'm hoping you the listener can i am here with a couple guests jesse hassinger my co-host for for my other podcast the new flesh horror movies podcast about horror movies and all things tangentially related to horror and the horror lifestyle jesse hassinger is here thank you hello jesse What's up? Jesse's here. He's uh, a freelance film critic. He's, his writing appears all over the place, including uh, his review of Nope is up today at, uh, was it Inside Hook? Inside Hook. Really great review from Jesse on that. And we are also here with uh, someone I've never met on until right now. Uh, I've been following him online for a while. He's one of my favorite uh, follows on Letterboxd and on Twitter. 
he he just gets it. He gets the movies. We are here with Jacob Knight. Hello. How are you guys doing? Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm great. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, you host a podcast yourself. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Secret Handshake? Secret Handshake is a weekly podcast uh, that's dedicated really to the cult movies that people kind of bond and form friendships over. Um, we've got about 65, 66 episodes now. I, I've lost count uh, with these stupid mini series and bonus features and everything that we do. But yeah. we also have interviewed uh, filmmakers uh, as well. We had Gaspar Noe on uh, recently. We had uh, Rowdy Harrington, uh, the director of Roadhouse on um Matthew Robbins, the director of The Legend of Billie Jean. Like, we just like to explore these movies that have kind of had big uh, impacts on our lives over the years and, uh, you know, how they kind of strengthened me and my co host Martin Carlson's friendship together. And you can find that over at, uh, well, on any of the platforms that you listen to podcasts to, from Apple to Stitcher, et cetera, et cetera. And then also, we host uh, writing from various writers uh, across the internet, like Simon Abrams and uh, uh, a bunch of other folks over at secrethandshake.com. Oh, yeah. Everybody should definitely check that out. Uh, it's a great podcast and a great website. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, of course, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I just want to wrap everyone's head around what we're doing here. Um combination rewatch podcast movie review podcast because what is a movie review youtube show hello or a podcast if not a spiritual sequel to siskel and ebert right they were the blueprint so we're not only gonna highlight that we're gonna keep it going with our own uh silly conversations and this summer is a particularly interesting time to start a podcast where you're aiming to tackle all the theatrical movies because we're in the middle of the summer where you'd think it'd be movies coming out every week that we're excited about. And we're very excited about Nope. But is there anything else even on the calendar today that's out, Jesse? Is like Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris or something out? Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris came out last weekend. Hmm. Thank you very much, Brett. Okay, excuse uh, me. <laughs> yeah, come on, show some fucking respect to Mrs. Harris. Went uh, all the way to Paris. Yeah, she went all the way to Paris for you to not know. Uh, no, there's no other movies coming out wide this weekend. There are, as always, lots of limited releases. Uh, Alone Together, Un Film du Katie Holmes comes out this weekend. The Nan movie, uh, a, a Catherine Tate Com like comedy sketch comedy spinoff movie comes out and some other stuff that I don't know much about. But yes, this is the only wide release this weekend. Just as next weekend only has two wide releases, one of them is a DC cartoon and the other one is BJ Novak's film Vengeance. It's it's a uh, slim pickings out there. Uh, even if even if you're excited about those movies, it's not there's not a lot of them. So I say all that to say that most weeks I think the format will be more like Siskel and Ebert in that. It'll be briefer, capsule reviews of every movie. Include, I think in August 5th, there's like Bodies, 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 and like five other movies that come out that right. day. I can't Easter remember Sunday, them right now. Bullet train, uh, Easter yeah, Sunday, yeah. Bullet Train. And like I, I'm planning on it. I, I think we're going to cover them all. And that is the plan going forward. But this episode is a very special one, not only because I'm releasing it as the first episode of Roger and Me and as a New Flesh episode about Nope, so this episode will be more in-depth of a review 
There will be a spoiler-free discussion up top, don't worry, uh, before we move into heavy spoiler territory. But I'm just so jazzed on this movie and like everything that's going on in it that I think it, it would be a disservice to our guests and myself if we weren't able to hash it out in all its glory. So we're going to do spoiler-free up top and then move into heavy spoiler territory. Um, so where to begin with Nope? Uh, I guess I'll start with uh, Jacob. You wrote a review. This is a, this is a phenomenon that is so rare for me uh, as a film critic. It's a unique privilege of a film critic that we get to see stuff sometimes early and um, sometimes before like an embargo is dropped. So like you don't know what anyone said about it and you haven't read a single word of anybody's review. So all you have is <gasps> your own thoughts and feelings. So I wrote a little blurb on Letterboxd and then I took a bunch of notes for this episode. And I went on Letterboxd to see all the other people who had just logged it. And I was delighted to find Jacob's post because it's one of those things where like, there were like even like a, a words we used that were identical to describe what we were seeing. And it's something that's actually on screen. It's like what we took from the movie. So that to me means that the vision of Jordan Peele was strong enough that even through this movie, that's like a lot of, it's like headier than his other stuff where there were stuff was kind of, subtext on the surface where this is like subtext is like in there and you kind of have to search for it even though they do make it they do help you along the way a few times but anyway i just say all that to say it was a treat to like read your own thoughts back to you from somebody else who honestly is more eloquent than myself and uh, i i'm honored that you're here to talk about it so why don't you give us a spoiler free uh your take on on nope and what you saw and what you thought of it well i think the not to hijack the conversation completely, Please. but the the thing that we have to talk about before you actually talk about Nope is Jordan Peele himself. Yes. And how I feel like our expectations have to be recalibrated with every movie that he's released since Get Out. Uh, because like the thing I keep thinking about is that how horror movies are the best horror movies are made by outsiders uh, completely like people who sort of come out of nowhere and blindside you in a weird way. I keep thinking about like Wes Craven and Toby Hooper uh, sure. directly in relation to, to jo Jordan Peele and how like nobody anticipated some weirdo former college professor to come out and make like last house on the left in the early seventies in the same way that nobody thought like this, like, wacko acid head hippie from austin texas was going to come out and make the texas chainsaw massacre in the same way like nobody thought the guy from key and peel was gonna make fucking get out like that right. wasn't gonna be a thing that ever occurred um and so like that movie kind of captured the zeitgeist and and it and redefined like its own era of filmmaking in a way that nobody really anticipated which has set up I think our expectations for his subsequent movies in weird ways. And I've really been fascinated with how he's kind of played with that to where like us is like one of the biggest, weirdest, like sophomore swings that you could take as a writer director. And I think that uh, Nope is for the people who enjoyed us more than get out uh, because it's even weirder and he 100%. seems like he's he's moving further and further away from the airtight uh precisely constructed uh kind of 
Twilight Zone creep show that that Get Out was and with all of its social commentary and stuff. And, and like you said, like there's a ton of subtext, both to to us and Nope, you know, with all in, in us specifically with the the hidden America stuff yeah. and doppelgangers and how like he's still toying with the idea of black identity and what it means to be black in America specifically. But then Nope is like, what if <laughs> you are part of the entertainment industry and like how we uh, now kind of commodify a certain type of like fear and angst and also how like these, these movies are made by a, a legion of people who just exist below the line below like, you know, that there's no top credits, like the, the best or the, the most, um, let's say established character who who comes out in our crew of folks who who try to like hunt down this kind of extraterrestrial force that descends upon the desert is like he's a cinematographer. Like yeah. that's the 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 biggest like top line member of this this ragtag crew, and the rest are like horse trainers. You know, a dude who works at Fry's is essentially like the glorified gaffer there, and it's a it the movie becomes as much as it is like an awesome like sort of like tremors uh like universal horror like spectacle riff it's about like what happens when this crew of dreamers goes into the desert with nothing but like cameras and like the limited technology that they have available to them and tries to capture something on on film that proves that that like the unreal can become real, you know? And that's what I love about the movie is the fact that it, it's as much about that as it is just a, a really like gangbusters, like Lovecraftian jaws riff. hundred percent. I loved all those words you said, and I will go into them. Uh, but let me get, let me let Jesse speak on that first. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I love the movie. Um, it's, I, I agree, Jacob, that it is, it does seem like it's more, it's moving in, it's in the us direction rather than the get out direction, which I personally feel very validated for because I really loved us. And I loved get out too, but us, I, I did kind of feel like, Oh, this is even more, this is like on a kind of different level in a way that I think is really cool um, in terms of craft and also just terms of not making it like a, a simple, like, well, this equals this, and this is what the movie's about us. There's like a lot of, it's a lot naughtier and a lot more like, excuse me, uh, subsumed and sort of you can, there are different interpretations that you can make and there's different stuff going on this one too. I feel like there's a lot of different stuff running through this one. There's sort of, um, you know, without wanting to give too much away, the, the, the idea of, I think that also that filmmaking involves trying to tame something that you can't really necessarily be tamed or that can be tamed, but kind of at your great peril. Um, there's sort of a thread about nature and trying to tame nature or sort of like uh, understand nature through how we, you know, make art about it or, or just, or sell tickets to it um, in a way that I found really provocative and interesting and just fun to, to play around with while it does also work pretty well as a kind of, you know, crazy uh you know sci-fi horror spectacle itself i will say to that second part that working is a crazy great sci-fi spectacle it is it's very funny it's very exciting beautifully shot there are times in it where i felt like peel was getting so interested in the kind of naughtier more complex elements of it that he sort of lets himself not explain 
just some like stuff that doesn't need to be held back just in terms of like what's the what are the characters plan in this scene there are a few details i found murky or sort of not explained terribly well uh i know people like knock on christopher nolan for like for inception having uh you know times where a character is there to say like so how does this work and someone else saying well here's how it works but honestly i would have wouldn't have minded a little bit just like a few minutes of like so what is this what are we what ex- explain the plan and here's what it is um some of it might just be the sound mix in the AM, in the amc empire where we saw this movie in the imax it like oh. is very loud but not always easy to understand the dialogue uh for especially someone with a lower register like daniel kalua like who's basically doing like like not a mumble performance but like, it's like almost. a taciturn eastwoodian you know kind of reserved performance it's very understated and it's a very yes. good performance but i agree yes. like the bass tones of his voice in the imax theater i was like huh what are you saying yeah. huh? Huh? i just feel like yeah. an old person on a cup their ears going what yeah well uh, i guess i have to go see it at the open caption screening if i want to understand <laughs> right, everything right. um and i'm not sure that even if i had understand every syllable of dialogue that it would have made some of their like kind of the oh, this is what they're doing in this scene stuff more clear. And that's a very, that's like the most minor of complaints I can have about this movie that I otherwise was really, it's one of my favorites of the year so far. Um, yeah, it's it's terrific. You know, the short review is go see this movie. It's uh, it's terrific. Yeah. Okay, I agree. And I agree that I do see some, like I, I have some issues with the movie for sure. And I will point them out at some point later. But it's one of those things where like, I'm definitely so jazzed on like the overall what the what the movie is and what he was going for that i'm totally willing to forgive the moments that don't quite connect or like the things that as my wife put it when we walked out she goes i feel like they cut you know there's like 15 minutes out somewhere and like like that explains a lot and actually when i rewatched or i actually hadn't watched the trailers at all and i watched the trailers today there's a ton of footage in the trailers that isn't in the movie so there's definitely something to that jacob i see you're gonna say something well, no, I was going to jump off of what you were saying is that like I distinctly had the thought that this could have been a limited series like and I'm actually surprised that it wasn't, especially given how Peel is, you know, become like part of rebooting the Twilight Zone right. and, and working in television and everything. But like because it's even segmented in a way with the title cards in a very ambitious fashion to where like you could do an entire episode just on uh, Steve Yoon's like, yes. And time is like a child actor and boy, do I want to fucking see that own hour long thing. And that's, that's the thing is I, I feel like again, like he's getting so ambitious with every film that I guess I personally prefer unwieldy and messy to like airtight and like i like being able to kind of jump in and fill in the gaps with with my own imagination and stuff too or or maybe just taking something as being inferred rather than fully explained i totally agree i couldn't i couldn't agree with you more this is like a subversive and audacious but the most important part of the sentence i'm going to say is that it's a commercial blockbuster that is going to be huge for universal and that is amazing to me that he not like you know made this movie the way he wanted to make it and um even if there's like things like i would say i wanted way more as you said like you could do a whole steve Wynn episode and i i want that and like i wait the way the movie functions it's like 
it's like that is its own little bottle episode for a second and it, and it's amazing and once you connect to the themes of that which we'll get into of like what that is saying and then like what his scene is an adult and oh god his scene is an adult where he's talking about snl is the best scene in this movie and like that scene and like i just feel like that scene and the level of writing and craft of what peel is going after by having steve win give this monologue about how this horrible thing happened when i was a kid but you know snl and society and everyone thought it was so like there's this amazing snl sketch about it and boy is it so funny like i forget how he phrases it but like you can he's phrasing it His as hand if, was it's, on fire yeah, yeah. <laughs> right it's incredible the way it's of course an incredible performance uh but just that whole scene and the way it unfolds and you can see like the look of actual like what's the the horror that's behind all of that for him and like how he's just you know let that he's let hollywood commodify his trauma and that's a huge theme of the movie and even if this you know the steve Wynn character i think people are like i think general audiences might want to see those threads come together in a more meaningful way or something but again on a pure like audacious messy unwieldy level like i got what he's going for and i don't need my handheld to be told well, these characters are going to meet in this way. Like that would have been forced. And I like the way that it manifests in the movie. So when I, my first thought when I walked out is I said, you know, Jordan Peele really made a sci-fi blockbuster that at, you know, it mocks the industry and it's about how audiences chew up artists and spit them out, commodify their trauma. All the while the movie is also advocating for the magic of movie making, specifically the analog magic of movie making and practical effects while spiting digital, while also using digital expertly in the movie, I would say. Like, it's an amazing movie with amazing digital effects. But I, I was struck the whole time by, like, the, the like, analogness of it all and how, like, the opening scene, you know, there's a, they're training a horse to be in a movie, but it's a pain in the ass. So they end up getting a CGI horse. And then later on, when, quote-unquote, the alien or whatever is taking horses, and then they give it a, they give it a fake horse, the artificial horse, and it literally spits it out. <laughs> and like can't handle it so like i just thought this movie was so brilliant when you make these like little connections when you're like i think jesse joked about this earlier being like this is that but like this is one of those movies where i was like this works the thing about the beauty of nope is that it works entirely i think as a sci-fi blockbuster that is crowd pleasing and interesting and has some truly horrifying moments is beautifully shot and all that stuff but it also functions as this amazingly um I don't want to say opaque. I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but like this opus about movie making itself, which is like a real trend this year between X, which is all about going into the woods or the cabin and making a, a you know dirty picture with your friends, um, and I would say Crimes of the Future is more like the Nope style of about movie making, where it's like, well, actually no, because Nope is about movie making, and Crimes of the Future is not about movie making, but you can infer that Cronenberg is like an avatar for the character in that movie. So I just think. I just love movies about movie making and that's what this is. This is a spectacle that examines spectacle. And as ever, as Jacob was saying earlier, the like attention to paying respect to the below the line crew is like what the whole movie is about to me. And I thought that was great. And I love the TMZ joke that he sneaks in there at the end. Um, I just think it's a super audacious movie. I was going to say too, and, and not to step on the spoiler part of the, the episode. Um, but like, the other thing that's incredible that that Peel continues to do too is how empathetic 
the movie is, is that for all of its acidity regarding the entertainment industry and um, kind of how these folks are sort of lost after their time in it, uh, it also serves as a way to show like how they're kind of damaged by it and feel like it makes the audience feel like sympathetic towards them. Like I love the fact that it's half of the movie is about a brother and sister relationship living in the shadow of their dad. And they're like his horse training uh, business that they're now kind of forced to take up out of response, like obligation essentially to his legacy. And then on like an even sadder level, the movie, all of the Steve Ewan stuff is almost about a guy who was completely like traumatized as he was a kid and regresses into being a theme park host who also at the same time uses said theme park to exploit this crazy thing that he finds in the sky. So again, I don't want to step on spoilers too much, but like Peel has a great knack for making you feel for these these outsiders that you otherwise possibly again because they're they're all below the line types or folks that like you wouldn't know unless you knew about this this weird what was it one or two season like child sitcom like yeah you wouldn't know about that yeah like gordy's home like you would have never known about that unless you watched it when you were like a kid but more than likely the people who know about it only know because the monkey killed somebody yeah, so and they know because like, Chris Kattan did that incredible impression of the yeah. monkey, right? But it actually think, but it actually takes the time to think about the fact of like, what would it be like for a child star to live in the aftermath of that? And like, obviously, it's the fantastical uh, kind of ridiculous version of it. But if you actually start thinking about Steve Ewan's character in any kind of like analytical or emotional sense, like it's really sad. Yeah, I. I was struck by, you know, as you say, the movie's about, to a degree, Hollywood not caring about the, you know, people who work in it, especially minorities and child actors and stuff like that. And, like, it's like Peel is equating the, um, like, treatment of these animals and, like, the way they're, like, cast aside, like, the with with those people. And I think that's... It's just it's 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 impactful to me. There's well, there's also an ambivalence I think uh, uh, there about when you talk about the analog versus digital thing in the movie. That's certainly there, but there it's not kind of an unambiguous like yeah. In my day, we did this with the models and the, like because using the real thing in this movie is what gets people nearly killed or you know at at, at best losing their livelihood oh and at yeah worst, it also has themed. things it also critiques like you know the cinematographer dying for the perfect shot yeah. and like <laughs> shit like that so like it's kind of like just a big writ large send-up to me yeah but with with elements that are like fully appreciate you know appreciation yeah it's, I mean, it's done with a lot of love it just is also it doesn't get really sentimental about the idea of filmmaking or you know there's it's really it's rare to see a movie about filmmaking that has a sense of awe which there is here and in, in what you're looking at but also but doesn't try to chase that awe with a kind of bullshit about uh, you know an academy award style the magic of the movies like you know squishiness about like how great it is for these people you know what, what heroes these these folks are or whatever um, that, that this does a nice job of avoiding that kind of like it, it, peel always remains 
kind of at least to my eye skeptical and like very thoughtful about these things rather than just being like isn't it aren't, isn't it great to use the magic of the movies to get stuff the practical way or whatever like he's very ambivalent i think about a lot of this stuff in a way that's that he all speaks to his love of it i mean you can't write that scene where they describe an snl sketch perfectly using the era appropriate cast yeah and jesse's like, like an <laughs> snl scholar and i was sitting next I, to him and he's like waiting for them to say the wrong name and they yeah. nailed it yeah i like whispered to my wife like a like a dork over to her when they were like and he's like and as the monkey i was like chris katan and, he, <laughs> and that's what he said chris katan like, yeah yes yeah i did i was just i, I was so eager uh but the, that's the thing like he's making fun not making fun of but sort of certainly drawing attention to the way these things happen and also doing it with this like enormous amount of expertise and, and affection in a weird way. Like yeah. he must, as a comedy guy, he must know this era of SNL well. And he has kind of a combination of affection to say like, to shout out Chris Kattan, one of the relatively forgotten SNL players of that era. Um, even when he's sort of Don't making you fun dare of merch Corky <laughs> Romano. <laughs> I was going to say one of the first DVDs I bought with my own hard-earned money, Corky oh Romano. Um, I mean, which which one of the three of us has read Chris Kattan's memoir? Anyone oh. else? Anyone else? <laughs> no. Me, baby. I read uh, I read no. a Seth Simon's blog about it though, so maybe that counts. <laughs> It sounded uh, traumatic for him, it, truly. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, he also comes across as a real weirdo. In, in my <laughs> well, opinion, but like, uh, he does that anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, plus, it's all written in that gibberish language from that character, the hilarious character he did. <laughs> Mango? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, like the guy who, anyway, it's still dumb. But like, that's the thing, like, it's you. It's easier to just. It's easy to just like you know say like, oh, SNL is so callow and like and callous and stuff, and they are. But then Peel writes it in such a way that he also is obviously someone who understands that the show cultural and impact of and it under too. exactly yeah. understands what's the kind of dynamics of sketch comedy and stuff like that and that just makes the movie such a richer experience than if he was doing you know either just a full-on satire or a full-on dismissal or whatever it's like it's a much naughtier movie than that that's also how i felt about us that it just it has a lot of stuff going on in it that is not this is good and this is bad <laughs> it's yeah, just kind I, of i totally yeah. agree it's more rumination than like making yes. an argument Yes. And it's what we just what we just said. I'm just going to repeat it because I have it in my notes as well. But like <laughs> the main target of its critique is also what it is, what it has like the most affection for. Yeah. So uh, it's a movie about filmmaking. And this is where the analog stuff comes in. But like, as you said, it's ambivalent, but it is telling the story about like a commitment to traditional craftsmanship that inherently plays like it's a rebuke to like, you know, a Marvel movie, like the current blockbuster model that just is all digital all the time with green screen. And this movie is pointedly just all out in the open in a field and it looks great and they don't have to like pretend they're in a field. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. specifically the fact that like the technology of the aliens makes the digital cameras not work and they have to use a hand cranked <laughs> IMAX camera to do things. <laughs> and um, basically, you know, retreating them back to the time of their ancestors and shit. Um, yeah, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I also wondered if some of the SNL stuff was either inadvertent or uh, intentional auto critique in a weird way of Peel on his own life. Oh, sure, he's almost to where he's almost talking about, like, because I'm sure, again, like him being a comedy guy first and not a horror guy, 
you know, he more than likely at, at one point in his career aspired to be on SNL. And I wonder if part of it is like him saying, like, if I ended up on SNL, would I be Chris Kattan? Would I be a guy who did like four characters and never actually got to make Get Out or or us or this movie that you're watching now and was like mostly forgotten or cast aside? Because, again, it's it's a weird way that like talking about other people he ends up talking about himself in a weird way for sure yeah i totally i and, totally agree yeah Go I, ahead, Jesse. key i think even key at least key was like no peel was on mad i was gonna say peel was on mad tv i know well, and so was and key, key, right? key yeah. was close key auditioned for snl key was very close from my understanding to getting yeah. snl during the obama years because they needed someone to do obama at some point right um, so i'm sure he's very close i'm sure if, if peel didn't audition or have some kind of contact or or talk try out to be a writer or submit packet or whatever I, I would be very surprised if he didn't have some kind of connection to the show um, I'm going to play a little clip from the trailer to keep us in uh, Siskel and Ebert mode. And then when we return to the screen in, you know, however many seconds, 30 seconds or so, uh, we'll talk spoiler, spoiler overload, all spoilers all the time. Here we go. Did you know that the very first assembly of photographs to create a motion picture was a two second clip of a black man on a horse? And that man is my great-great-grandfather. Great. There's another great-grandfather. But that's why back at the Haywood Ranch, as the only Black-owned horse trainers in Hollywood, we like to say since the moment pictures could move, yeah, skin in the game. What a great trailer. Uh, nope. The trailer for Nope, which I have avoided until today and i as i mentioned it was really interesting to watch and see all the random clips there's a whole scene with kiki palmer on hollywood boulevard <laughs> it was there's a lot of weird stuff that didn't make it in the movie but that's a conversation for another day hopefully when the insanely stacked dvd or uh, the vista series yeah. infinite <laughs> film <laughs> i know you keep comparing this to signs jesse but this is not a m night Shyamalan movie whatever whatever you have to say about it um before we get into nope spoilers i just want to do like a quick overview of if you jacob could you speak to what would you say get out is a movie like what is the thesis like what is get out about and then what is us about and then what is this about i kind of want to talk about those things i have them in my notes if you uh i'm sure you remember like are we okay. talking about the plot or the subtext no, just like the subtext like my point is i, I want to know what these like what he's getting at in that movie so I'll, I'll just say from my experience the well, quote that's operate most operative from the get out for me as I did the rewatch was it's such a privilege to be able to experience another person's culture. And obviously the movie is about being um, black in America, but specifically the read I got, especially after watching Nope and with all the meta stuff going on, it's really hard not to see it as specifically about being a black man in a white dominated industry that is Hollywood. <laughs> well, also it's, it's sort of about the commodification of like, black people and black yep. bodies specifically yep. and how like people think that they can still own them even in an, a, a post hope post Obama sort of era in that, you know, being a good white person, quote unquote, like Bradley Whitford and Catherine Keener and stuff that still, you know, allows them or, or, or gifts them the privilege that they can uh, perform these experiments and, and, 
frankly own slaves again. And it's like one almost excuses the other. Absolutely. And I love the detail specifically about Stephen Root wanting his eyes, um, which really tracks right. with yeah, really tracks with the whole Jordan Peele is Daniel Kalua stand in in this movie. And I, I love that uh, that movie holds up insanely well like i watched it the other day thinking that like well it's his debut film like I, i'm imagining it's not going to be like visually compelling that as, as i remember but every element of it holds up and it, it's really a treat to to rewatch it especially with the original ending which i don't know i'm, I'm sure many most people know about it now but it is on the blu-ray and the original ending of the movie is the exact way you probably think it was going to play out before the reveal and I'm that it's so a TSA. glad it didn't. I I'm of two minds about it. I believe that the comic relief of the actual ending in the movie where Lil Rel shows up and gets to say, you know, I told you not to go in that house after after saving him is so funny and so crowd pleasing. And I totally understand why they went with it. But there's a part of me that thinks the super fucking dark alternative it was actually a cop coming and not the TSA. And he's now in jail for killing her in that version. She also dies on screen, which she doesn't in the other one. Um, and that there's a scene in, where he's in jail and talking to Lil Rel and it's a fucking gut punch and it rings true. Um, I think it's notable that that was like the original ending, but I agree with you. It is better objectively, I think for the way it ends now, because who wants to walk out of that movie? Like you'd feel so bad. And like get out makes you feel bad, but it also lets you walk out feeling a little better. Well, I, I think the other thing too is it's one of the things that Nope actually gets to or gets back to that get out was and that it's uh, as heady and weird and all the time that we're, we're we've spent already and going to spend on the subtext or the it's about making movies, blah, 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 blah. It's a crowd pleaser yes. where us was not. Us Correct. was very weird, especially once you get to like the dancing ending. Like I remember watching that even in the press screening and you could feel the bafflement sort of just falling over the theater of people being like, okay, the, what the fuck is the going whole on scene now? where they're like, the people are underground and like mimicking the moves of the people up, up uh, above is like the only sequence in that movie that I would say it's otherwise an unimpeachable movie, but that sequence is like too much for me. I'm like, this is silly. Well, well, and also, like, the, one of the, the craziest things, because I, I watched parts of Us last night to prep for this podcast, and one of the things that I'm still struck by is the idea of him basing an entire film around a forgotten, like, Reagan-era, hands-across-America commercial. Like, who, like, I don't even, I'm 40, <laughs> and I don't remember that. So it's like, and half of his demographic is going to be younger than me. Or I don't know how old you guys are, but I imagine we're of the same generation. But yeah. it's like, they're all going to be younger than us. So it's just a strange decision. But again, it's one of those things that like, to go back to the idea of like, uh, get out coming out of nowhere and kind of redefining Jordan Peele as a horror guy, as opposed to a comedy guy, is that you don't get to do that if you don't make get out. And get out isn't a sensation. Like you don't get to make us. You don't get to shoot nope on IMAX cameras. Like yeah, that, and like that's a seventy-five million dollar, sixty-five million dollar budget or whatever. Yeah, exactly. But there, but that again comes from, and I think that that is part of why I prefer the, the ending that they went with is that like when you watched that movie, 
an opening weekend with mm-hmm. a packed house the way that I, yeah. I did when yeah. when he pops out of that car and goes TSA like, never seen a crowd response like that it. in my life yeah. yeah yeah like and I think that that's peel again like uh, because be peel in a weird way the the other comparison I had in my head the recent comparison is frankly Taika Waititi and not in any kind of stylistic sense, but just in the fact that like Taika came from being like this comedian, this weird outside New Zealand guy. And now he's this Marvel dude for better, in my opinion, worse, (laughs) but like you have Peel doing the same thing. And it's funny that you said you hadn't seen the Nope trailer because one of the things that I was like totally petrified going into the press screening this week was the fact that i'd seen the nope trailer eight billion times before every mo- it's like that yeah. in bullet oh, i, I heard the nope trailer. trailer i see yeah. the most <laughs> yeah i but do a lot like, of this when i when i'm in the I, movie theater I, yeah. I was personally terrified because I was like, I'm going to hate this movie. Like the, the trailers have already beaten me into submission. I already feel like I've seen it. Like it, it's, it was suffering from what I now refer to as Waititi syndrome and that I'm just tired of seeing Taika Waititi everywhere. So like, I'm just inclined to hate whatever he's doing next, despite it being good or bad. So I went into Nope with this chip on my shoulder. And as soon as we open with the very odd image of a monkey covered in blood on a, a, an abandoned sitcom set, I went, Oh, okay. I'm fine. Like this. Yeah. We're, we're gonna be and okay. then the monkey stares at us, the viewer. Yeah, open. It breaks yeah. the fourth wall, and you're like, "What's happening what the here? Fuck like- is going on?" Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> um, and then we talked a little bit about us, but I just want to go back and just to say what that movie was about because I also watched their day, and I wanna, I wanna show off my knowledge. Mm. Um, it's a movie to me. My viewing this time, which is my third or fourth, uh, to me, it's very obviously a movie about how we ignore the plights of the less fortunate who are really no different than us. And for every family with a vacation home, there's another family just like them that doesn't have one because the other family has one. And like, that's the, that's the system we've built for ourselves in this country. And that's the way it is. And I would say the movie is a critique on that or just an exploration of that. And specifically the hands across America thing went down way easier for me this time. When you kind of realize that the entire thing, the entire, the reason why it's so operative in the movie is only because yet yeah, she she was a little girl. What's her name? Adelaide or something? Uh, she was a little girl. Adelaide. Yeah, Adelaide was a little girl in the opening scene, right? And we see her watching the commercial, and she's using scissors to like cut out little things from pieces of paper. And that's just like what she was doing before her entire fucking life changed, and she got swapped. So she was like obsessed with like the last thing she saw. So like to me, the idea of the hands across America thing was just like she's now in this tether world, right? And she's kind of different from everybody else and therefore she used like her knowledge from the world to influence them and her knowledge from the world the last thing she could think was oh yeah i just saw this commercial for hands across america so like it's truly is just that simple for me in terms of like the operation of it in the movie and obviously peel is getting at something with reaganism and the era but the specificness of like the scissors coming into play later and like all the cutouts i'm like oh it's just it's just hearkening back to that scene and that's like a fun little button but well, it is and it's diluted, maybe. Sure. It's it's also something that I think it, it also works as something that she as a child has been consciously or not has been sold. I mean, that's what Hand Across yes. America is selling that, that we're we can all to get we're all together and we're all you know, we're all in this together. And we are not emphatically uh, in, in America in all in this together. 
um as uh pitt says in uh, uh <laughs> them softly it's not a country it's a business um fuck you pay me yeah <laughs> yeah man that's a great movie it's so um, good people fucking, love it so well, famously an f cinema score for that yeah one. The, what are the, what are the, in the in the, the verified like company or something yeah yeah so many that's probably might be the best of all of the f <laughs> it or, might be all pretty good <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're all good it's like it's like mother must be one yeah. right yeah <laughs> I, think, I think mother is one yeah um so yeah, their hands across America thing as obscure as it is, as it is, it is one of those. I think you pointed that out well, Brett. She prints on imprints on her as a child because that's what it that's what that's what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to sell to people watching TV and people in America that this is like this great thing that we're all doing together. So then to have it sort of echoed in this kind of t twisted way to me, it makes sound like I'm talking about the Joker twisted. It's to have this, twisted, have yeah. it echoed in this dark way in the movie, I think makes a lot of sense, even though it is, it is kind of a, yeah, I'm, uh, Jacob, I'm 41, so I, even, there's not a touchstone of my childhood, even, you know, it goes back, like, I feel like I would have had to be a couple years older to even be very aware of Hands Across America. But it's such, it's like a deep pull. <laughs> even Peel seems like he's too young to be really have, be that, thinking that much about Hands Across America. But it's kind of speaks to the way he's able to pull stuff out of history or, or pop culture and say, Oh, here's what's really going on with that. And here is how this weird little curiosity like kind of becomes refracted into this, in, like into a kind of a, uh, you know, example of what's kind of fucked up about the country without being heavy handed about it. It's also just like, has a great nightmare slash dream logic. The, to take the idea of, people holding hands across the country, like, which is ridiculous as, as a logistical thing. And then to make it into this, like, kind of, you know, it feeds into this very, I mean, the, the world of us is impossible. The, like, there's just this whole second layer of everyone with a doppelganger below, you know, like, it makes no physical, like, logical sense, but that's not really what Well, and that's why it gets over its skis when it tries to be like, well, look, they're really just right below them doing the same movements, and it's like, okay, you well, lost I, me a little bit. I like, I like yeah. that. I, it's it's such a, like, a weird dreamlike idea that I yeah, really... Okay. It, yeah, I just feel like he... That movie is where I was like, okay, this guy, like, Get Out, obviously, is great. And us, as I was like, oh, I'm, like, dying to see his next movie because, like, if this is where he goes from Get Out, you know, I can't imagine where he goes from this very, like, I think I, Us, is in some ways, is a better horror movie than Get Out. I mean, Get Out is oh, sure. is very good and and does does what it does perfectly. But Us... I was like, oh, okay, this isn't this. He wasn't just using horror to get across a point in that first movie. He's like a legit good director of genre stuff, which is yes. uh, you know invaluable. And, he's, <laughs> and he had this, you know, I think it was a, it's a three or a five picture deal with Universal. And he just said okay. in an interview recently that he's gonna do more than that. He's like, I know I'm gonna. I said I was gonna do five horror, but like I, I'm I'm not stopping. Like this is where I'm happy, and I, I couldn't be happier to hear that. Uh, yeah. Jacob, you I, go ahead. Right. I was going to say Universal is such a perfect home for him too. Yes. just hearkening Spielberg. back to the days of like, well, I wasn't going to say Spielberg. I personally am thinking of like people under the stairs and Wes oh, sure. Craven and like when Sam Raimi made, uh, you know, Army of Darkness for them and stuff like he's in great company with those guys. So it's like it, it's cool to see a, him like upholding a studio's legacy while also making a movie that's about, you know, why legacy in Hollywood kind of fucking sucks for those who have to participate in it. But like the one thing I do want to say about us in specific is that us to me more than get out 
proved his chops as a filmmaker just in terms of set pieces because yeah. i think the the home invasion set piece in the middle is like the best is still the best thing that he's ever done in terms of just a pure visceral like horror set piece and then nope is almost like again jaws or tremors like in terms of how like you have especially after the halfway point you have a bunch of like amazing set pieces like the the TMZ thing where the guy's just stranded in the middle of the desert that becomes like the bait in a shark movie. Yes. And I, I, I was just about to prompt you to talk about Jaws. So I'm glad you did. Um, the, I saw someone on Letterboxd, I think his name, I'm say his name, Julian Singleton wrote this line that I wrote down. I thought it was great. He said, the movie treats filmmaking like its own hunt for Bruce the shark. And I love that. And I well, wanted you to expand on what you said about uh, Lovecrafty and Jaws, because that's absolutely perfect. I'm going to go grab my computer charger while you do that. I'll be right back. Well, it, for the big epiphany moment is, frankly, Michael Wincott. His entire like role is essentially he's the Quint uh, character from Jaws. Like he's only instead of a shark, he's hunting like the impossible shot. Like that's yes. what he has been after his, his entire life. That's his white whale. But frankly i have to be honest i it's a weird coincidence that next week is shark week um and that i've we're doing an episode at secret handshake just on shark movies for shark week so i've been watching for the last three four weeks like everything from jaws to like shark attack 2 to like night of the sharks with treat williams which if you haven't seen it skip it it's not good. <laughs> I um, love a, I love a good shark movie. Like 47 meters down, both of them are great to me. And uh, yeah, well, that was one of the ones, ones. we, yeah. Martin, my co-host and I did a marathon uh, on July 3rd. Um, we just did a total like bro down guy thing to where like my uh, girlfriend went out of town for the weekend. He came over, we made wings and then we watched like, five shark movies in a row i but love it i had never seen 47 meters down uncaged which is quite good it's good um, both those movies especially the first one just that's one of those movies where the premise like i'm sold enough like that's all i need to know like the premise is the whole thing and like being trapped in a cage underwater with a limited amount of air and a shark i just like i'm sold and the fact that they made it and it's as good as that premise i'm very happy I mean, what was that old Godard quote to where he was like, the only thing that you need to make a good movie is like a shark and like Sylvester Stallone's daughter in a bikini. <laughs> like I, he, I'm paraphrasing. Yes. <laughs> that it was like that. Yeah, that was it exactly. Actually, yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, to get back on track with Nope is uh, the movie specifically. It, it it reminded me of the Lovecraftian Jaws idea because it becomes about this thing, the way he teases it out and teases it out and teases it out to where like you see something move between the clouds in the background. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, it starts hunting people. Like we even get like point of view shots from the, I don't even want to call it an alien. It's literally like, it's never explained what it actually is. And that's the Lovecraftian part of my comparison yep. is that it literally becomes about this shapeless, nameless evil that just exists in the sky as a cloud that literally doesn't move until it wants to. And then they talk about how they even give uh, the, almost like I watched Jaws last night, too they talk about the uh, 
territorialism, like the whole Richard Dreyfus like monologue where he explained territorialism to uh, the the mayor and Chief Brody is that you even get that to where they're like, oh yeah, it's only here because we're in its hunting ground. And I thought I was like, dude, it's it's so obvious. What I wanted to like, if Peel was sitting next to me and we were like, like buddies, dude. I would have looked at him and been like, all right, man, like I get it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's all in there. Yeah, I mean, I have actually had a. This is. Can I ask a purely logistical, spoilery, really spoilery question? That sure. would be, you should not. Sure. Like, you should shut it down if you haven't seen this movie because <laughs> this is like a late movie question. When the alien thing, whatever it is, takes the barbed wire, and our man from Fry's Electronics escapes from the barbed wire, but it it kind of gobbles up the barbed wire. Does it shred it and make it kind of more billowy, or does it just shape shift like? It, it's it, it's a fine saucer shape and then later it's and then sort it becomes more... like this like lovecraftian weird yeah thing. yeah it was that some like i was just one like i there that was that's what i mean when i, I don't mean to really mean when i'm talking about like thematic stuff that i felt like was not adequately explained and i'm not looking for like reams of explanation but there were a couple just like purely logistical things where i was like wait why is that happening and that was one where i was like was it is that because it swallowed up some barbed wire or like or and that's wrecking it a little bit like to, cause it doesn't spit it out. It doesn't seem like the same way it spits out other things that are hard to digest, such as coins, keys, yeah, plasticine horses, <laughs> etc. So I just wasn't sure if you guys, what you guys thought was happening. What was happening? That's why, why does it become like a billowy, like multi winged kind of thing rather than the more perfect flying saucer shape. It feels like it's peacocking to a certain <laughs> degree, especially oh. by the end with, yeah. Uh, Daniel Kaluuya it almost feels like and and again this could be just a personal interpretation like solely with no backup but like when I watched that scene again Peel has specifically said in interview interviews like he's used the term spectacle and how it's a movie about spectacle well the movie opens with that quote about spectacle too I forget what it is exactly it's in there yeah Yeah. but it's like uh to me, that is almost like the idea again of like the Lovecraftian old ones or any kind of gods that you you have prayed to or that you read about in like Greek mythology or any like ancient civilization. It's a demonstration of of power and complexity and how they tower over you in a way. And that's and almost how like no matter what you're armed with camera, harpoon, etc., doesn't matter. You cannot dominate me. I will, I will literally suck you up and shit you out. Like the entertainment industry has uh-huh. for your entire life. I mean, cause that's the other thing that I always found again, to bring it back to peel being a comedy guy. It wasn't until I was driving home that I was like, this movie opens with a poop joke, kind of like Keith David is murdered because yeah. he's pooped on by keys. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> "You're right." Like, it's you not until like later that. once you. It's not until later when you realize what's actually happening in the movie. It's like he he died from projectile doo doo. Like that sucks. <laughs> what a way to go. <laughs> At least he got Keith David for it for yeah. the most iconic exactly. guy possible. Um, yeah. Uh, one quote from Peel that I have here in an interview is he said he's describing the movie um, spectacle as trauma or as tragedy. He said, when you're on a road and there's an accident and people are rubbernecking, what you're talking about is trauma as entertainment. It's intrinsic enough in our DNA that traffic slows down when there's a spectacle to be seen, a bad spectacle. Everyone likes some form of horror or darkness. We need it. 
We need to contend with these things, whether it's coming to see my movies or your procedural television that just goes to the darkest place of all time every night, but somehow you go to bed okay. We need this. Horror films and the people who try to capture their nightmares and show it, I have to think and hope that it provides some catharsis for, the, for some people. What a fucking genius. Well, and it's like the, it's <laughs> what uh, Daniel Kaluuya keeps saying too, is that what's a bad miracle? Like, yeah. I think that the other reason why this thing in the sky is not defined is because like what he's one of the few people, like his, his sister, Kiki Palmer is she instantly is like, let's sell it to Oprah. You know, like yeah. <laughs> it's all about her mindset is like the commodification of how can this push forward my, my, my real gig, as she calls it, her real gig is actually acting and directing and like everybody in the entertainment yeah. industry tells you it's not wrangling horses. It's, it's this art that I do. <clears throat> and her brain instantly goes to the idea of like, how can this catapult me to another level of stardom where like OJ actually takes a moment to consider what they're witnessing? Because I love the phrasing bad miracle. It's just like, even and to bring it back to the 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 spectacle ideas like when you see a horrific car crash that's what a bad miracle is it's this something miraculous happened in front of you but it destroyed everyone around it yeah and that's the basis for crash david cronenberg's crash <laughs> the Great oscar movie. winning 2005 film <laughs> crash <laughs> sorry <laughs> No, yeah, I agree. I think that, yeah, that's Peel puts it very well, and then you guys put it very well. It, it does that, is, and that's that's an adequate, that's a better explanation than the barbed wire shredding the thing. Um, and it is, <laughs> it's also really scary. Like it's uh, it's scary in a different way than you know something going bump in the night, which is sort of both Get Out and Us are sort of essentially, if you really really boil it down, something going bump in the night. This is like there's the scenes at night, but there's stuff in the broad daylight and just seeing that thing when the undulating or in the sky, once you kind of know what it is, is really terrifying. And a lot of what he leaves opaque, just like about the physicality of it, the screen, like kind of viewer thing that you see um, when you see it sort of point of view or sort of the alien eye view shot is unknowable and scary in a, in a really great way. It's, it's, yeah, it's a really I awesome. That, I love that. There's no scene. That's like, well, this conveyor belt did this and the yeah. people got sucked up in this tube. Here's where they are. Like, yeah. I love how the way he treats the horror is horrifying and it leaves you scared. I totally agree. I don't think anything's like over explained. Um, I was like trying to parse like what it meant when they were like, you know, the whole thing about like, what's the metaphor here for the don't look at it thing. And at first I was like, Hmm, maybe this is like telling artists not to like read the reviews or re check Twitter. And then I kind of moved back and I'm like, no, I think it's what we were just talking about where it's like, we all can't look away from the absolute worst shit on earth, yeah. whether well, it's, it's a car be, crash yeah, it's or, or being like a youth who's my age, a little younger than you guys. I'm, I'm sure you experienced this too. I don't know if you were young enough to be stupid enough to click on them, but I grew up going to like agrish.com and something awful. Rotten.com. Like, Rotten.com. And like watching like uh, beheading videos and shit. And now today, kids are inundated with fucking school shootings. Not only like the threat of them in their lives, but like videos of kids getting obliterated or just out there. And like, that's what he's talking about to me. It's like, he's talking about a spectacle that we can't look away from. And that's what, yeah. that's like in society. I also think it points to a underrated Peel influence 
the uh, Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. I'm only half joking <laughs> that I feel like his mix of horror and, and comedy is not unlike those the best Simpsons Treehouse of Horror segments. And to the point where there is a Simpsons segment um, where the the mascots on these different uh, like big box and chain stores come to life and start wreaking havoc kind of kaiju style on Springfield. And the way you kill them is to not look. There's the little ditty that Paul Anka comes with, comes up with that says, just don't look, just don't look. And I was thinking of that. Why I feel like Peel, that might be seem like a reductive thing to say, but Peel as a comedy guy, I cannot believe that he didn't think of that at some point while making his movie, but that he hasn't, I'm sure he's seen that Simpsons episode. Just don't look, just don't look. And I like, that's kind of a facile thing to say, but it's also like, I feel like that is what he's really good at is doing something sort of satirical, but also like genuinely kind of like, creepy and horrifying and funny like it's really is the kind of tr treehouse of horror writ large <laughs> sensibility and you don't really see that in a lot of in a lot of horror filmmaking An another horror element that i wanted to mention that i was iffy on at first but by the end i really liked it uh the idea to have like chapter chapter title cards essentially that are each like named after the different horses basically that are about to get like sucked up or whatever and because after the first time we know what it indicates like when that title card comes up i think i saw someone make this comparison i wish i wrote down who it was sorry whoever this person is someone compared it to like the night one title cards that come up in paranormal activity like anytime there's some some horse shit's about to go down as if to indicate uh-oh like buckle up and i really appreciated that by the end of it especially when it cuts to like the last one um the jean jacket one or whatever so uh, satisfying, weirdly, just when they, when the jean jacket thing comes up on screen, you're like, fuck yeah. <laughs> and, and even though it's kind of abstract, it's just kind of like, yeah, this is going to be good. And like, I shit on movies at, at festivals all the fucking time for having superfluous chapter titles. But when Jordan <laughs> Peele has them, they are not superfluous, well, he's, I, I, he's, I, I say. Yeah, he's a super smart guy, so I think it works. <laughs> Jacob was right to say this movie is just completely modeled after Jaws to the point of I was, again, trying to make like vis-a-vis -vis comparisons like is that purple people eater speech supposed to be quince big speech <laughs> man it it plays so hard into both two things one michael wincott's voice which is still you want to talk about a bad miracle like that's a <laughs> that's a thing that'll be stuck in your head for the yeah. rest of your life the first after the first time that you hear it hoist antler is that his name <laughs> yeah it's what an incredible that's a cronenbergian character name oh, yeah, right there absolutely <laughs> absolutely very convex but, hoist antler but the other thing that it it plays into is again peel continues to be in his own way a master uh of music of film music in particular because like you know in us he he's using I got five on it to rather amazing uh, yeah. orchestral uh, success. But then in this movie, he does it twice because I think that when he slows down, when all the electrical pulses go out, when the, the uh, extraterrestrial comes in and attacks and it slows down the fries truck as he's listening to, I, I wear my sunglasses at night. Like yeah. that's just as creepy as like anything else he's done. And then the purple people eater thing is again, him 
he like he loves the idea of like southern rap and like chopping and screwing like songs to like where a pitch can all of a sudden change the entire meaning of a, a, a track. And that's what he does with the purple people eater thing is that here's this child song that he just chops and screws down using Michael Wincott's bad miracle voice. And suddenly it's like terrifying and weird and ominous. Can I tell you guys something really, really dumb about me? Of course. Uh, and that is I, I, when I saw him, I was like, oh, yeah, Michael Wincott, the guy from The Crow. I always think of him now as the guy. He's the guy from the, he's like the bad guy from The Crow. Very scary. Of course. Uh, but but I, the name I didn't I, I mixed up my head. So I saw his name in the credits. I was like, the guy who does the noises from Police Academy. I knew you were going to say Michael Winslow. Winslow yeah. I was like, Peel is such, such a baller. Yeah, he's, he's going to find some. He's going to revitalize the career of Michael Winslow, who I don't even know if he's still alive. Um, so I was part also of also not to be confused. Bit, with Jeff Wincott, who I believe is his brother, the uh, little sung early 90s martial arts movie expert. Oh, okay. wow. Who knew? Yeah, I mixed that. <laughs> I mixed them up because I'm an idiot. But yeah, movie... same, I mean, same. I, I am an idiot. And Michael Winslow, just for FYI, is still alive. I'm relieved to report. Oh, good. Thank you for that. That's an exclusive. Roger and me exclusive. Um <laughs> There's one thing I wanted to mention because this movie is obviously modeled after blockbusters that he loves and is out in the middle of July via Universal. So like it's all very uh, premeditated blockbusterness, and I love that. Um, and uh, one other thing I was I was thinking of when watching this is because when I I rewatched Jurassic Park ahead of um, Jurassic World three or whatever that one's called, and the one thing I was struck by rewatching Jurassic Park is how you can watch that movie and take it as like Steven Spielberg making a movie about Hollywood's transition into digital technology and how he like isn't ready for that and like would rather make movies with big fucking practical effects and I feel like that he channeled that only that part of Jurassic Park like he really I feel like it was the same energy um for that well and the whole don't look at it set piece that you brought up earlier like to me that's that scene is just the jurassic park the kids in the the jeep moment it's just redone with an extraterrestrial it's don't look the t-rex in the eye or it'll eat you <laughs> so i wouldn't say this movie has like a moral is there like a moral of the story like i don't think it's saying like go out there and throw away your digital cameras and get all your analog cameras back out like i don't think it's saying that as i said earlier i think it's more giving you like a canvas of ideas that you can go home and take home with you and think about yourself and what it all means i do not think it's like a big statement piece or anything i do just think it's a love letter to movie making and he said he you know he's saying that there's nothing like the old-fashioned way basically and of course, I agree with that. Um, we haven't really talked about what's his name, Hoyt Van Hoytema, the cinematographer, Christopher Nolan cinematographer, who does impeccable work here with IMAX cameras and 65 millimeter uh, film. 
Yeah, there's it's weird. It's interesting. Like, I think the Shyamalan, M. Night Shyamalan comparison is completely valid. I say that as a fan of Peel and as a friend of a fan of friend, a fan of, uh, <laughs> of, of of M. Night Shyamalan as well. Um, but yeah, there's also a surprising amount of Christopher Nolan in this. And that seems like that's a total guy who's seen one movie ever type of comment, right? <laughs> I really see, I'm really seeing a bit of the most popular director currently working uh, in this. Yeah. But at the same time, he's using Nolan's cinematographer shooting an IMAX, which no one loves to do. Yeah. And uh, like, and even, even, I, I don't think this is intentional, but some of the dialogue is a little hard to parse as it is often in Nolan's movies. And some of Nolan's movies really do also read as filmmaking metaphors, right? Inception feels that way. And Tenet feels that way. Certainly it's like these logistics, uh, the kind of massive logistics needed to make a movie on the, in the vein of Christopher Nolan's favorite stuff. And also think as you, Brett, you mentioned the analog stuff, uh same thing with no one's like he's all he's always using these like real locations and trying to use practical effects when he can and all this stuff um so there is i don't i don't know if there, there is much that amounts to that uh, you know the same way that i don't know that there's really much of a uh it's it's obviously there's a thinkier movie than tenant but like tenant was a movie where i was like well this doesn't i don't know if this really says much in the end but i really enjoy it uh this movie has a little bit of that like chris nolan like uh, making a giant spectacle that is about itself, <laughs> about the making of itself yeah, to it. I don't know that, yeah, what, what the kind of, what your takeaway of it necessarily is. It's not as kind of lesson-y as, oh, I love Shyamalan and I love Signs, but it's very obviously constructed. I rewatched it again recently because I was writing a piece about the two movies. Um, it's very obvious that Signs is constructed in a way that says, and the, you know, moral of the story is like everything happens for a reason. And like, it's very, you know, it's almost didactic about that. Like it's, you know, he was wrong to lose his faith and he is, his faith is restored at the end. And it's done in a pretty elegant and understated way. And it works. Like it, I have to acknowledge that it works, even though I don't agree with what it's saying. It's one of those classic, like, no, I don't know. This is not my view at all, but like, you've said it well, like you've said what you're trying to say well, but there is a little bit of like calculation and like, yes, this is going to, this is going to all arrive at the outcome that things happen for a reason. And Peel, the where I think he departs from Shyamalan is that he doesn't, isn't quite as prescriptive about that. I'm not sure if he has a firm conclusion about where, where this movie is supposed to leave you. Um, and the movie's so entertaining that if your movie's entertaining enough, it really doesn't, matter if that's if you're not giving an answer sometimes better obviously if you're not like giving a specific you know here is the moral of the story um but i i do feel like there's you know it really puts him in a kind of weird continuum with Shyamalan and, and no one maybe just because there aren't that many directors who are able to kind of say exactly what they want to say with certain resource at like a you know studio level resources even though Shyamalan sort of makes smaller movies now it's still like there's two big studio like universal movies yeah 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 absolutely. yeah, yeah. There, there aren't that many people who are able to kind of harness those resources to kind of do exactly what they want. Uh, so there is kind of a, you know, I don't know. I don't think that's a statement within itself, but it certainly does make you very aware of how few guys there are making movies at this level. Um, and yeah, that also sort of sets it apart from other horror movies. Cause it's, you know, it's sort of horror, it's sort of sci-fi, it's sort of action adventure. Um, because uh, horror movies tend to be a little smaller than this, right? Like there are a lot, usually when a movie gets blown up to the scale, it's no longer 
really horror or even Jaws. I feel like it's very much a horror movie, but it doesn't really get described as that. You know, if you talk about the the highest grossing horror movie, I think they'll still say like Science of the Lambs or something. They wouldn't say like they wouldn't. People don't say Jaws is the highest grossing horror movie because it's sort of also a sea adventure movie. Yeah, it's a thriller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, I don't know what I'm saying with all this. Just that it's it's like I like it. Continuum. I'm just trying to look. I'm just looking through my notes, all the things I wanted to mention. There's all the beeps and boops, very heavy beeps and boops in this movie that reminded me of War of the Worlds, I think, most obviously. A lot of close encounters noises, I felt like. But I think War in the War of the Worlds was like the most operative in terms of sound design that I remember that I would compare it to. But it's one of the most uniquely loud movies I've ever seen. The Nope. It is really incredibly sound design. Definitely see it as big and loud as you can. Do you guys think we need to go over the plot of this movie or have we had enough talking about it? <laughs> I think we've had enough talking about Nope. Yeah. Uh, if you're listening to this, surely, hopefully you watched it already. You don't need us to tell you what it's about, but we can tell you what it's really about if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, so thank you, everyone, for checking out Roger and me. We'll be back on Tuesday with uh, our first episode. That's a rewatch of a Siskel and Ebert episode. And that episode will be the very first episode it's from november 1975 and it's the title of the show was opening soon at a theater near you and the movies discussed include two absolute bangers uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest and dog day afternoon oh on the same fucking episode on the same episode and there's four other movies that are movies you've never heard of almost certainly that i had to track down and i gotta give a shout out here they're not a sponsor but hopefully they will be to be (laughs) <laughs> to be the streaming service of the people they have everything and it's free they have all these movies from the 70s that ebert's talking about on these shows that i've never heard of uh mr quilp and um what's another one to watch conduct unbecoming that's a movie from 1975 starring michael york that i really enjoyed that's on Tubi. jacob knight's given a fist pump for that one it was really great i had never heard of it loved it ebert and uh siskel did not even like it but i liked it um <laughs> And there's something else I watched. Oh, Sunday Too Far Away, like an Australian movie from then. That's like an Ozploitation movie. That was really great. But the main focus of that episode will be the two movies that people know. One Floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Dog Day Afternoon. We'll watch clips. We'll talk about the movies. Uh, and then there'll be a Patreon bonus to talk about all those other movies that, <laughs> that I just mentioned that aren't those main two. So we've got tons and tons of content. No lack of content. Sorry this isn't a true crime podcast. But maybe one day it will be. Maybe we'll commit a crime on it. Maybe one of us will get murdered. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. All right, Jacob, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Jesse, thank you as well. And I will Cheers. see you. I will see you at the New Flesh podcast. And let me try a sign off. Do I have a sign off? Um, be good to each other. Uh, what do people say <laughs> at the end of podcast? That's uh, the way so, it is. <laughs> support your local cinema and don't forget to tip your concession staff.
lifestyle. Forgive me if I don't stay around to watch. I just can't cope with the freaky stuff.